You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. John chapter 16. This is Jesus talking, of course, to his disciples. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see Me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come 
when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his blessing now. Lord, what an incredible gift to hear the words of Jesus Christ, to hear the words of the Messiah, the Son of God Himself, to His disciples. And we, Lord, want to be Your disciples. We want to follow You. You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Who else would we turn to? No one else does what Jesus does. No one is who Jesus is. And so we run into the arms of Jesus now this morning as we think about these words. We pray for Your help. We pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we might have a mind of understanding and hear these things rightly and believe them and obey them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Reality is, friends, that we live in a world without the physical presence of Jesus. Yes, I know the church is Jesus' hands and feet, as the popular phrase goes. He dwells in our hearts by faith. He's present spiritually. And yet, Jesus isn't here in bodily form walking among us like He did 2,000 years ago. And this might cause some serious questions in your mind, in my mind. Maybe some serious crises of faith at times. Sometimes we think that, oh, if we'd have just been the disciples, if we could just go back in time somehow and see Jesus in the flesh, how much stronger our faith would be. Or if, oh, if Jesus would just appear bodily to me now and speak audibly, how much more confident in the faith I would be. Why isn't He here? Why does it seem, to the contrary, like we're on the losing team? Like a bunch of ragtag misfits Vagabonds, outcasts, addicts, and losers. Why do we continue? You ever wonder this? Why do we continue to be the team that has forsaken power and coercion and influence and vengeance for meekness and weakness? Why would Jesus minister and die and rise again in glorious triumph and then just leave? Leave us to get bullied, marginalized, Beat up, dragged through the mud, justly, unjustly imprisoned, leave us to try to do business and to raise our families and to navigate the world like people who don't even belong to the world. And for all our fears of a post apocalyptic nightmare besetting the world, this make for some amazing movies. For all our fears of that, in a way, we Christians live in a pre apocalyptic wasteland. The apocalypse. <laughs> The unveiling of Jesus at His second coming hasn't happened yet. And in some ways, we navigate this world as strangers and aliens. Foreigners. Outsiders. In a culture that's hostile to biblical Christianity. Friends, Jesus anticipated this reality. He anticipated this for His disciples and for us. And glory of glories. In chapter 17, we see that He prepared His disciples to meet this new reality. Reality of living a life as a follower of Jesus without Jesus' physical presence. 
He prepared them and He prepared us by promising some very precious things. His teaching in John, uh, in the past few chapters anyway, as you've seen and anticipate it or expect at Connection Church here, in the past several chapters, Jesus has been somewhat imperative. Right? He's been focusing on the now. He's been giving some guidance and, and, uh, and command. He says, believe in Me. Keep My commandments. Abide in Me. Love one another. And now in chapter 17, He changes a little bit to become more future-focused for His disciples in anticipating a time that, that we live in. And He gives them preparation for life in a world without His physical presence. And He, gives, he does this, He prepares us this way in chapter 16 by giving us some precious promises. The first promise in verses 1-4 through four is that He promised us trouble. He promises trouble. This comes now in verses 1-4 through four on the tales of His teaching from chapter 15, the previous chapter, that the world would hate Jesus' followers because it hated Him. And if they hate Him, how much more then are they going to hate His servants? And He elaborates now. They're going to ostracize you on religious grounds. He says they will put you out of the synagogues. And more than that, they're going to seek to kill you. And when they do, they're going to actually think they're honoring God by that, by that supposed service to Him. This, of course, had already happened. Remember the man born blind that Jesus healed. And what happened to Him? They had put Him out of the synagogue. They had cast Him out of the religious life of the community. It says that they wanted to murder Lazarus along with Jesus. The guy... Jesus raised from the dead. These things were already happening and Jesus promises, friends, if you're going to be my followers, this is going to happen to you too. Saul of Tarsus, of course, comes along and fully believes he's serving the Lord by harming his followers. By harming the followers of Jesus. Why does Jesus spell all this out in such explicit detail in these these verses? Why does He promise us this? He says this is going to happen. Well, He tells us why. He says, uh, verse 16, or chapter 16, the very first verse, again on the heels of what he said in chapter 15, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That's why. He wants us to know in advance so that when we go through this, when we walk through the pre apocalyptic wasteland, we're not surprised. We're not like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't part of my Christian experience. This isn't something that comes from following the Lord of life. Jesus anticipates that, 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 uh, that and difficulty we might have and says, know in advance, know beforehand that this is coming so that you're ready. I didn't tell you anything different. He says in verse 4, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, namely the hour of those who persecute you, you may remember that I told them to you. So in other words, don't be disillusioned by what signing up to follow Jesus means. Signing up to follow Jesus, to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ means a number of things. It means forgiveness of sins. It means everlasting life. It means unspeakable joy. It means empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And it means extreme hostility from a world that doesn't follow Jesus. It means extreme Hostility from powers who are allied against Jesus. And so, friends, we should just expect difficulty as Christians. If you're not experiencing that now, you can thank the Lord and you can anticipate that that time is coming. We should learn to think of tribulation as normative. This is just what happens. Maybe we're a little foreign to this in in our cultural context in America, 
I would expect that this isn't the case for many believers around the world in other places. Tribulation is normative. Remember that as John writes the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, remember how John addresses himself to the believers? He says, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. All three of those things, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance, governed by a single article. In other words, he's saying these things are all parallel to one another. They all belong together. I'm your partner in all of them. Friends, if you belong to the kingdom, you belong to the tribulation too and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. J.C. Ryle, the great evangelical Anglican uh, of the 1800s, he said, uh, no Christian is in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. He that expects to cross the troubled waters of this world and to reach heaven with wind and tide always in his favor knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And so friends, when you encounter trial, when you encounter difficulty as a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you, that's not a sign that God hates you. It's not a sign that you've chosen the wrong side. Instead, remember, Jesus foretold this. Jesus said, told us this specifically in advance so that we wouldn't fall away, so that we'd be filled with patient endurance. And he promises in the second part of the chapter in verses uh, 5-15, through 15, he promised the Holy Spirit uh, to help us walk through this pre-apocalyptic wasteland. Verse 7 might astonish you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. How could it be our, to our advantage that Jesus would go away, that Jesus' physical presence would no longer be with us for thousands of years? And yet Jesus says that is indeed the case because otherwise the Holy Spirit would not have become. And what is the Holy Spirit's ministry? Jesus says, it lists it, um, he gives, gives what the Holy Spirit's work is going to be like in sort of two categories. In verses um, 8 through 11, we kind of see the Holy Spirit's work in terms of the world. And then in verses 12 through 15, we see the Holy Spirit's work in terms of the church. In verses 8 through 11, he says that the Holy Spirit is going to bring judgment to the world system that opposes Jesus. It says he's going to come and convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When you and I think of the word conviction in a Christian context, we probably think of uh, that work that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts where we suddenly become aware of sin, right? Uh, and we're pricked. We're filled with compunction. We want to change that. We want to repent. We want to flee to our Lord and say, ah, oh, cleanse me from this. I don't, I don't want to be under this burden anymore. That's typically maybe how we think of the word convict. But I wonder if the sense instead here when it says that he's going to convict the world, maybe it might in encapsulate that for some who hear and the Spirit moves in them with, to have a tender heart to the message of the Gospel. But I think primarily what Jesus is saying is that the the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world. Namely, He's going to offer a judicial judgment, a verdict of guilty. He's going to declare uh, reproof to the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because um, He says, because they do not believe in Me. Unbelief in Jesus Christ is, uh, is, is exposed by the Holy Spirit as, as, as a sin, as something that human beings ought not do and is in fact against the law of God. He says concerning uh, righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. It's a little bit puzzling, actually, how those things connect. How is 
the Holy Spirit convicting the world concerning righteousness, and the proof of that being that Jesus is going to the Father and you see him no longer. Uh, people have puzzled over this for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, maybe the best guess that I, <laughs> that I, can, I can give to you uh, as I study commentaries and whatnot on this is, uh, is that um, the, the fact of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus as he ascends to the right hand of the Father, now vindicate that he was, in fact, the righteous one. In other words, the world crucified Jesus thinking it was doing a righteous thing. The religious leaders, the people of the world, crucified Jesus and thought, this is a, an okay thing to do. This is a standard of righteousness that we're upholding. Uh, but now when Jesus vindicates, uh, is vindicated by the Father as he raises him from the dead and sees him ascended to the right hand of the Father, that's actually a flip of that righteousness and say, no, this is righteousness, namely my, my son who, uh, who came, lived, and died among you and rose again. And he says also in verse 11 concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit now in his ministry and work reveals that it's the devil behind the world powers that convicted Jesus, behind the powers of the world that now oppose Jesus. It's actually satanic in influence and in origin and the Holy Spirit issues judgment on him reveals him as evil. His downfall is procured. His judgment is certain. But in verses 12-15, through 15, he shifts to what the Holy Spirit's ministry to the church is like. He says the Holy Spirit is going to guide the disciples into all the truth. Verse 13. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, or sorry, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he'll glorify me, Jesus says. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. So this is important. What does he say the Holy Spirit is going to say to the disciples? What's the Holy Spirit going to say to the church? Is he going to give new revelation? Is he going to give another testament? Should more books be added to the Scriptures as time goes on, right? Maybe you read the writings of C.S. Lewis or somebody like that and you think, oh man, this moves my heart to contemplate the glory of the Lord and deepens my, my fellowship with Christ. Uh, maybe, this ought to, maybe we ought to bind this up Maybe Crossway will come out with the, you know, the enhanced edition or something like that. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Does Jesus reveal, or does the Holy Spirit reveal more truth? The truth about aliens? The truth about the Illuminati? <laughs> well, friends, no. We're told what this Holy Spirit says. He says what Jesus says. He says what Jesus says. He says what Jesus is all about. He says who Jesus is. He expands. He takes everything Jesus has taught his disciples and he impresses it on their hearts and reminds them of it and expands it in such a way that they get more of Jesus, that they see more of his beauty, more of his love, more of his authority, more of his dying grace, more of his resurrection power. He speaks what belongs to Jesus. His ministry, his mission is to exalt Jesus. He says he'll... <clears throat> He will take what is mine and declare it to you, and in doing so, glorify me, Jesus said. So the Holy Spirit's mission is to exalt Jesus in what he says to the church. We've seen here probably a self-attestation of the divine authority of the New Testament writings. Jesus promised that first generation <clears throat> that, uh, that, he, that the Spirit would guide them into all the truth. And so we're... F.F. Bruce, the commentator, uh, says we're probably intended to imply that the Gospel of John itself is now a written fulfillment of this promise. 
And the prophetic character of how the Spirit works in the church is promised as well. In verse 13, He will declare to you the things that are to come. Maybe we're so intended to see the book of Revelation as a fulfillment of that promise as well. And so believers, the Holy Spirit moves in us as a church body, as disciples, to be radically Jesus-centered. To know more of Jesus as we see Him in His Word. That's the only way we know Jesus. right? That's the only way we know anything about Jesus. You don't just sit and meditate <clears throat> And think, wouldn't it have been cool if Jesus was like that? Yeah, I think that's how Jesus really was. Right? No, that's not how it works. That's the only way we know anything substantial about Jesus is through what the Holy Spirit has preserved through the writings in the New Testament. And so the Spirit moves in us to be radically Jesus-centered and radically Word-centered. And we're faithful to His leading when we seek to know more about Jesus and know more about Him personally and give heed to the Bible. And we hold all other claims of truth up to its light. Thirdly, in chapter 16, verses 16 through 24, Jesus promised to get us through this pre-apocalyptic wasteland. He promised us unquenchable joy. He promised unquenchable joy. In verses 16 through 24, the disciples get somewhat confused about the coming events that Jesus is referring to. right? And He doesn't really explain it. He just reaffirms that at His crucifixion, it's going to seem like everything is lost. Their world is going to end in blood and sorrow, and the world is going to rejoice. And yet, Jesus promises, this will not be the end of the story. Have you ever noticed how human beings are hardwired to like a happy ending? We love happy endings. There's something innate in the human condition that expect, not only expects, but is, seems fulfilled when we get a happy ending. Every now and then you get a book or a film that has a sad ending or an abrupt ending, but those are mostly weird indie things <laughs> that like four people saw at a film festival somewhere and then they put those olive, olive wreath award things to try to trick you into renting it. That's a you know, generalization. Um, but no, we, you understand that, right? God has put something in humanity that anticipates glorious consummation. A resolution that's so happy, so brilliant, so perfect, that we delight even in lesser stories, film and books and songs, that end with the triumph of love and goodness. Those things are shadows and types of the reality. And Jesus promises the disciples an unquenchably joyful ending. He even compares it to childbirth. This is kind of gutsy of Jesus to say this, but right? The trauma, the pain of giving birth, and then, but, but then to see it uh, sort of in, in a way overshadowed by the joy of new life born into the world. Such will it be for the disciples, he says. I, verse 22, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He's got to be talking about the resurrection, right? They're going to weep and grieve. They're going to be scattered when He dies. And yet, three days later, their joy is going to be overwhelming. It says, in fact, John 20, it says the disciples were, were, uh, were filled with joy when they saw Jesus. They were glad when they saw the Lord. But there's probably also a bit of telescoping going on here too. Jesus has that in mind. And yet, I wonder if He's got echoes of the second coming uh, intended at the same time. 
I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, namely in an eschatological sense. At the end, when Jesus comes again to make all things right and all the disciples of all the church of time immemorial will rejoice in him. But as part of this joy, this making this joy complete, part of that Jesus says is that we're going to ask of the Father in Jesus' name and we're going to receive. Isn't that amazing? To pray in Jesus' name, he says, is a privilege that belongs to the new order that you and I live in if we're followers of Jesus. A new order that Jesus inaugurated by his resurrection and ascension. And so it's not like a magic formula where in your prayer, if you forget to tack on, in Jesus' name, amen, like you don't have as much confidence that you're going to get what you prayed for, right? Is that how it works? Well, surely not. It's not some talisman or magic formula or something like that. To pray in Jesus' name, I think, means that we pray to the Father on the merits of Jesus. In light of, in view of, all His life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. In light of His identity as the very Son of God, the Messiah, came in the flesh and ascended to the Father. It's on the authority of the One who conquered death and hell and who rose again. Prayer that comes to the Father in Jesus' name and merits. Prayer that's based on the gospel message and comes from those whose only claim before God is the gospel. It comes out of the hearts of those who know, I have nothing good in me to offer the Lord and yet I come on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and through faith in Him. I wonder if it would help us to see this better if we started our prayers with, in Jesus' name, instead of ending them. I think somebody wrote a whole book about that. I was googling about that the other day and i think some guy's got a book about starting your prayers with in jesus name seems like a wouldn't be a super long book but um (laughs) that's cool i I like that idea (laughs) um in this time in the wasteland you and i are called to pursue joy through the reality of the resurrection and through the reality of the second coming jesus has overcome death itself and there's coming a day when faith will be sight Hope will be certainty. Reading will be beholding. Praying will be face-to-face conversation. And we're called to pursue joy through bold, expectant prayer that exalts Jesus and asks in Jesus' name for things that exalt Jesus, for things that are going to glorify Jesus and result in the, uh, the glory of, of His name and, and the furthering of His kingdom. And so pray. Do you want things to change in your life such that Jesus would get glory? Well, then, friend, pray. Pray in Jesus' name. Do you want your family to be in tune with what God is doing? Well, then, pray in His name and Jesus' name and ask. Do you want your neighbors and friends to believe the gospel? Pray for them. Do you want your neighbors and friends to believe the gospel? Pray. Do you want your wayward sister, your wayward uncle, your father, your daughter to come to their senses and repent? Then pray. Do you want... Your neighborhoods, your schools, your city transformed. Then pray. You want Connection Church to grow in depth and in reach? Pray. Do you want to plant more churches? Pray. Do you want victory over darkness, over doubt, over unbelief? Then pray in the name of Jesus. Do you want truth to reign and falsehood to be exposed and the saints to be vindicated? Then pray. Do you want there to be more money and more servants for missionary work? Pray. Pray. Do you want this pre-apocalyptic wasteland 
terraform with bubbling springs and lush green foliage of the gospel, then pray in Jesus' name. Pray with joy and expectancy and full-hearted confidence in the man who is God, who died and rose again, who reigns supreme, and He loves His own to the end. And He loves. He loves our prayers. He loves to see us pray. And the Father loves to answer them. And Jesus promises, right? Verse 24, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus promises joy. And part of the way we get that joy is by praying in His name. He promised, verses 25 through 28, He promised us to help us navigate this this wilderness. He promised us intimacy with the Father. Verses 25 through 28, it's a little bit confusing. It almost sounds like He's saying um, He's not going to intercede for the saints anymore. Right? I don't think that, that's what he means to say. or I don't think that's what he's intending us to, to understand. Rather, I think his point is that believers in Christ enjoy a profound intimacy with the Father Himself through faith in Him. Right? So he says, In that day you will ask in My name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. In other words, he's saying because of our acceptance of the Gospel, because we have reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith, we're no longer enemies who need a third-party emissary to kind of go back and forth conveying our messages. Rather, we're sons and daughters of the Most High through faith in Christ. And that's how we get through this time, this wilderness without the physical presence of Jesus, with our faith intact and our joy unquenched. We rest in knowing that God loves us. God the Father loves us. God the Omnipotent loves us. I have to ask, have you been reconciled to God? Have you personally, you personally, been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have peace with God? Because it's not just automatic. It's not just... You know, like if you just happen to think about it and feel like you're cool with God, well, then everything must be okay. Right? Is that how it works if you're enemies with someone? If you're at odds with somebody? If you have a falling out with somebody at work or at school or wherever? Or a family member? Is it, do you just wake up one day and you're like, oh, I think, we should, I think we're cool now. That's not how it works. Now, the Bible says that the only way to have peace with God, the only way to know God is this Father who loves you. The only way to have forgiveness of our sins is if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We repent of our sin, turn away from Him, and turn instead to Jesus who bore our sins in His body on the cross and then rose again. It doesn't mean simply agreeing that Jesus is real or simply going to church or simply trying to be a good person. If you're not reconciled to God, you're hostile to Him. You're His enemy still. Instead, it means admitting that you're God's enemy and a sinner and then crying out to Jesus to save you and putting all your trust in Him. And that then entails a radical life change. Jesus describes it as so radical as to be born again. Have you been reconciled to God? Do you have this intimacy with the Father that Jesus promised His disciples? If that's not true for you today yet, I pray that you might Repent and believe the gospel today. 
Finally, verses 29 through 33, Jesus promised victory. Jesus again kind of anticipates the disciples are going to have this difficult hour after he's crucified. He says, you're going to be scattered each to your own home. You're going to leave me alone. I won't be alone. I'll, be with, I'll, I'll have the Father, of course, Jesus says. And then verse 33, he kind of he brings it back around to what he said at the beginning of the chapter. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. There's this grim reminder, right? In the world you will have tribulation. It's the grim statement of it's the reality of the church age. But Jesus, he says, uh, has overcome the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And amazingly, this victory that Jesus has accomplished by His resurrection, His ascension to heaven, to the Father, this victory is something that all His followers share in. That's, I think, the message of the whole book of Revelation. That to stand in the midst of a culture and society that's hostile to Christ, hostile to His people, hell-bent on marginalizing and crushing them, unless they participate in the same idolatries, to stand in the middle of that culture for Jesus and to resist that idolatry is to overcome with Christ. And the promise of Christ to the churches. Have you read those letters to the seven churches of Revelation lately? Each one of them ends with a promise to those who overcome. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life. To the one who overcomes, he will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes, I will give of some of the hidden manna. The one who overcomes, I will give him authority over the nations. The one who overcomes, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We overcome because Jesus has overcome. And so, friends, Jesus says, take heart. Be of courage. Be strong. Overcome. Stand against the idolatry that is so seductive, so whirling about us, right? Threatening to suck us into its vortex of soul-killing death, right? Stand firm and overcome in Jesus and take heart because Jesus already has assured the victory. He has overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, we may not have the literal physical presence of Jesus with us now. He might not walk bodily among us yet. But the Lord has not abandoned us. He's not become disinterested in you. Jesus has fitted us with these precious promises to see us through to the end. And He will not let you go. He has told you beforehand that there will be trouble. He has given His Spirit. He has pledged you joy. He has opened up communion with the Father. And He's already won. And you and I will share His victory. Let me pray for you. Oh Lord, we love Jesus. We love Your Son. And we love You. And we love Your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm so moved by the Trinitarian working in this passage, how the Spirit and the Son and the Father all bless Your church and glorify You and exalt Your name and bring us through Your saving purposes, through a, a wasteland to glory unspeakable. And so I pray for Connection Church. I pray for the men and women and children here today and for myself, Lord, strengthen us in faith. Strengthen us, Lord. Nourish us to be those who overcome with Christ. 
Strengthen us to believe these promises. For the hurting today, Lord, for the doubting, for those who maybe feel like they're teetering. God, I pray for an extra dose of your grace in their life today. May they be strong in Christ. May they look to him in faith. May they find uh, spiritual life to rise and stand. And may we all know those things in Jesus' name. Amen.